today on The Lab Report. I'm here, Ashley Gibbon from The Lab. Yay. Wait, right. wait, I, I'm oh. still here too. Did I oh, get yeah. replaced? Um, why don't we just get to the next part? What? Awkward. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello. Shot out of a cannon, Chapman. I surprised you, didn't you I? Did. Woo. You didn't expect that did from not. me. No. Got to keep you on your toes. <laughs> Got to get all excited. Especially about juiced today. Juiced up. It's the lab I'm report. Psyched. My name's Michael Chapman. I'm Patty Devers. And thank you for listening to this podcast. If wow. you are. If you're not, subscribe. <laughs> you should. Well, if they're not listening, how are they going to just subscribe? Oh, they'll know. <laughs> Can I tell you, I'm so excited about today's episode. Me too. I've been talking about this. We've been trying to do this recurrent segment called Scienceness, Technology, Machine Mechanics. I've been trying to think of a jingle for it. Oh, gosh. I've, just so you know, I've yet to succeed at that, but it's a matter of time. I'm dying for this because when we consider that we're a laboratory company, right, Michael? We are a laboratory company. And neither of us are laboratory technicians. No. Nor do we have any idea how to perform laboratory testing specifically. Yes. Nor do we fully understand a lot of these methodologies, like most doctors. Begs the question why we're sitting here, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? And you really made a good argument against you. us being the <laughs> no. ones doing this podcast. No, I make the perfect argument because we're the people who are we're we're pretty like pretty self-deprecating in the sense that I'm willing to admit I don't know. Most doctors aren't. So we're the perfect people to bridge this gap because the science knowledge down at that lab is something that is completely untapped and no one's willing to admit we don't know what the heck chromatography is. <laughs> we don't. And I think most doctors are too embarrassed to admit that they don't know much about methods. Just wow. saying. You are fired up about I can't wait for topic. today. And you also just assumed that all doctors are not willing to <laughs> admit that they don't know. <laughs> they think they know. I think that's a bit of a straw man, mm, but you know what? No, they think they know, but... So you think I'm wrong. You think a lot of doctors know about chromatography? No, I, I, I think there are a lot of doctors that don't know as much as we know about chromatography. Well, they, they know more than me because I know nothing. Like, what's chromatography in your own words? Like, what does chromatography mean to you? Well, I, I mean, that's easy. Like, it's the, pro <laughs> it's the process of using good. a chromograph to separate different molecules. A chromograph. <clears throat> are you sure that's the right word there? Yeah. Uh -huh. but I, not be, I mean, I work for the lab. Oh, okay. It's Go a ahead. chromograph. No, it's not. And it's what you use to separate these molecules. What do you separate them with? It, well, it's mostly chromium, right? <laughs> That's where it gets the name. It gets the name from chromium, and it's essentially no. it's a metal. It's a chromium-plated metal it's sieve. The way you, you, you're, you're beating the molecules with the chrome? No, you're not. You're Look. It's the the cro chromium based chromatogram wow. sieve. Listen to me. It's horizontal. You're People, using gravity. There's, I want the audience porous. to understand. He is. He has no idea no, what he's talking about. It's porous. This is all. It's a porous metal. 
right? And so larger molecules are going to have a more difficult time getting through the None of chromograph. this involves chrome. As compared to smaller molecules. And so there's Please, a rate at which these are going to filter through. Understand, this is all through. made up. And there you go. I rest my case. A chrome sieve? Chromium-based <laughs> chromograph. It's chromatograph. It has nothing to do with chrome. Okay, or so I got that part wrong. Right, so that's the whole point. We're completely confusing everyone out there because neither of us know what we're talking about. And most doctors just throw out words like that. And I'm like, that really? Are you calling me most doctors? You're far different than anyone I know. Happen to know about chromographs. Chromatographs. That's what I meant. I don't think that is what you meant. <laughs> do you think there's I mean, chromium-plated sieves? Really? What else would it be? Not a I mean, chromium-plated sieve. We just did the entomology of it, right? Uh, that, and so we oh know... I rest my case. We know exactly Entomology is the study of bugs. I mean, you're going to nitpick on <laughs> on entomology. I don't think... I think I think this makes the case as to why we need someone from the lab that we can ask questions I agree to. with that. I agree okay. with that. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't... I mean, I thought I explained it pretty well, but... <laughs> The great thing is that the people at the lab that we know are yeah. so smart. It's ridiculous. And it's absolutely ridiculous how smart they're they are. working their butts off down there to keep all of these laboratory tests churning out. And we just really need them to shed some light on methodology and what's going on down there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I try to drink caffeine strictly just to keep up with the minds <laughs> and the words coming out of the mouths of these intelligent individuals. Right. And it's not even working. And I'm no. drinking a lot of caffeine. He is. Like, I'm risking a major coronary mm. event. I know CPR. Thank goodness for that. But that's just to demonstrate how brilliant these people are. So right. with that, you know, I think that we should go and grab someone. Yeah. Let's just grab somebody. But, uh, Michael, can I ask just this one question? Uh, yeah, go. You don't even when, need to ask my permission. When we get this really smart lab person here, yeah, and they start explaining some of the methodologies that we need explained, yeah, will you not shame me for asking really dumb questions? No promises. Really? I mean, half my bag is shaming. I know. I've just got a big shame bag, and I'm just like, shame on whoever like deserves I know, it. I know, like, little bits of knowledge. Because it makes me feel knowledge. better about myself. <laughs> like, I know bits of knowledge, but I want to know that I can be humble enough to ask really dumb questions. You're pretty humble. I don't think there's any shame in that, and okay. I don't think you should feel bad about any question that you ask. Well, I I'm don't. I don't want you to shame me. Here. Just don't. Okay. This is a judgment-free zone. Thank you. Everything's going to be mm. okay, Patty. Everything's going to be okay. And you know why everything's going to be okay? Why? Ashley Gibbon is here. Thank God. Ashley Gibbon. Oh, hi, Ashley. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the lab report. Thanks. Your first appearance was really well received. You're a star now. Awesome. You are a star. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're here. You want to know why? What's up? Michael's rambling on and on because he thinks he knows what's going on down at the lab. Mm -hmm. And... He's really confusing everyone <laughs> with his word salad of nonsense regarding okay. methodology that he's made up. Trying okay. to help, but yeah, I guess. Mm, not okay. really. So, you know, I think one of the things that clinicians think, this is the way that they understand, is they're going to run, let's just pick serum homocysteine. Okay. And so they do a blood draw. They send the vial, and it goes to the lab. The lab probably drops it into some little dropper machine. 
It spits out a number. <laughs> bada boom, bada bing. There you go. Life would be really easy if that's how it worked. Yeah. And and that's the assumption, right? I mean, it I'm is. Not... We want to kind of chip away at some of this. Okay. And really understand what's going on down at that lab because you're everything that keeps this whole business running. Awesome. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe a good place to start because we use chromatography a lot as a means to determine like a, an amount of something in a, in a medium, Correct. the amount of something in a, in serum, the amount of something in urine. So what is this machine? And there's different varieties of it. So maybe you can start there and then give us a basic understanding high level what this machine does. Sure. I mean, chromatography is, it's more than just a machine. It's really a whole field of analytical chemistry. And it's really the science of separation. So it's helpful in any application where you've got a mixture of things and you want to separate them out into their individual components so you can measure them. So it's used a lot in environmental testing and water testing, food mm -hmm. analysis, and definitely a lot in clinical clinical chemistries. Mm -hmm. So that, that thing is blood, and you're going to divide it into the specific analytes, is what you're saying? Correct. So there's a lot of stuff in urine and blood and stool. Okay. And so chromatography is very helpful in being able to separate those out individually. A lot of other laboratory tests, if you're only looking for one particular analyte, you might instead go in and say, how can I tag that particular analyte to be able to see it in and amongst all the other noise? Mm. In chromatography, you're saying, okay, we're going to separate everything out into their individual components, and then we can choose what we want to measure. So it's helpful for if you want to measure multiple things in the same in the same analyte. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Science of separation. Okay. Science of separations. So that's like a good that. that's a good way to think about it. What? How does it do it? And <laughs> why is it called chromatography? Right. Like, what's going on there? The name chromatography. That's a good question. It started back in the early 1900s. It was some sort of Russian botanist who was looking at colors and cells things like that but it's evolved like chromatin yeah something like that, that so the that entomology of it oh is my essentially god entomology <laughs> is the study of bugs michael oh right the the etymology of it it, right. it dates back to it does have to do with with color to a certain extent correct right yeah. it's come a long way since then you know it's it's how do we how do you do it there's a lot of ways to come at it there's a tremendous number of techniques and you're going to hear all those gcms lcms hplc LMNOP. Like the acronyms alone are just going to make your head spin. But at the end of the day, you're just trying to separate out mixtures into individual substances. So the way that we do that, especially in development when we first start, is to say, what do I know about the analyte I'm interested in from like a chemical or structural point of view? And what else do I know about the other things in that mixture? And then if I know what I'm looking for and everything else in the mixture, I can use that to my advantage to sort of selectively pull out the things that I want. So a good example is I did a training a few years ago here at Genova. It was an internal training called Chromatography for Non-Chromatographers. That's me. <laughs> right. Yeah, and most of the people who came to this training were in our finance or client services, and they had no idea about laboratory science. And so to, to demonstrate this idea, I brought in a great big mixing bowl, and I put sand and sugar and these little like metal nuts and bolts and big rubber bouncy balls, and I mixed them all up, and I said, Okay, this is your sample, and let's say that I ask you to tell me how much sand is in your mixture. How are you going to do that? So first thing I did was reach in and use Wait, my... Wait, so it does include a sieve. Is there a sieve? <laughs> you can use sieves. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Michael was right. Look out. Oh, no. Turns out he was right. Uh-oh. 
So the first thing I did was to to just reach in and pull out those rubber balls because they're large, they're brightly colored. It's easy to physically separate those, right? Mm. And so then the next thing I did was bring in a, an industrial magnet and sort of move it all around the mixture, and that pulled out all of the nuts and the bolts. So that's a magnetic separation. And then I had a bowl full of sand and sugar. So, I mean, how do you think I separated that? A, a sieve. A, <laughs> a, cr a chromium-plated sieve like Michael thinks. <laughs> That would be hard to use. <laughs> yeah. No, so I added a bunch of water and I heated it up. And so the sugar went into solution in the water. The sand, the sand fell to the bottom. We poured off the water. So the demonstration was showing that we used three different types of techniques, a physical separation, a magnetic separation, and then a chemical separation. You know, knowing what I knew about each of those individual components, finding a, a, an area of, of separation to pull them out. And then I could have just my sand and measure how much is in there. So that's similar as well. So in with the chromatography, you're using a physical separation. Or are, are these options? Or are you always using those three things, physical, no, chemical? No, it depends what's in, what you're looking for. Right. There's all kinds of, what, of methods of separations. So that's what we're and doing you, in chromatography is exactly the same thing, just on a molecular level. Got it. And you get to that from knowing about the chemical structure of the molecule that you're targeting. Exactly. And that's the fun part about it. So if you take that same demonstration, and let's take it to a like, real-life example in the lab, you think about something like organic acids in urine, which we run on the NutriVal. We test for, what, 44 organic acids mm -hmm. in urine. So if I'm coming at it from a chromatography point of view, I want to say, what do I know about organic acids, and what do I know about the other things in urine, right? And then how can I use those things to my advantage to be able to pull out just the organic acids? So, like, urine, what, I mean, what are all the things in urine? Mm. Hormone metabolites. Lots of things. Right. Um, Amino acids. Urea, right? Yeah. Urea proteins. Fat, probably White cells, epithelial cells. Yep. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly water. Yeah, lots of proteins and salts. Organic acids, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, drugs, medications, like all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff is in urine, right? And so how am I going to pull out just the organic acids just out of that mixture? So what do we know about organic acids? They're... Carbon-based. Carbon. Organic, right, right, and they're acids. Mm -hmm. And they're also very small, you know, from a molecular point of view. So you're talking about molecular weights from 70, 80 to maybe 150, maybe 200. They're small compared to something like a hormone that's like 300 or a protein mm -hmm. that's 60,000, something like that. So they're very, very small. So they're small, organic, and acids. Right? You knew that right off the top of your head. I know, right? That was wild. I need to drink <laughs> some more coffee. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you know this about those particular chemicals, and then how do you start separating so let's take organic acids as an example like how do you what is what does an lcmsms do to be able to separate those well a lot like the demonstration we use several different techniques so a lot of times we'll start off with just a real high level separation sort of like the bouncy ball idea where i'm reaching in so for organic acids for example we start with a liquid liquid extraction where you've got you know your urine is mostly water and we'll add an organic solvent like methanol or ethyl acetate or something like that that doesn't mix with the water. And so we, we put them together and then we make them. We make them interact by vortexing them really hard. Like oil and vinegar. Exactly. You just shake them really, really hard. So shake them really hard. And then we let them separate again. And the interesting thing that happens is that all the heavy things like proteins are going to stay in the water. The salts, which really like water, are going to stay in the water. But all my organic acids and amino acids, they're going to move into that organic layer. So suddenly now I've got two separate layers, one that has all my water, my salts, my proteins, the stuff I don't care about, and I've got all of my analytes of interest up in this top layer. So it's that same first extraction method. So, you know, first step, we've removed, we've taken urine and we've removed water and proteins and salts. Cool. So pretty cool. good step. Right. Okay. So now, then we're going on to the machine, and that's where you're talking about your LCMSs, your GCMSs, all those different 
combinations of letters. And really, you know, to, to break that down, usually the first couple of letters are telling you liquid chromatography, gas chromatography. That's your next step of separation is telling you how that instrument is going to further separate your analytes. And really, it's just talking about what phase is, is it in the liquid phase? Are we going to turn it into a gas? Mm. That sort of thing. And then the last few letters of those names is usually about the detection. Is it a mass spec? Is it a UV? Is it a time of flight? Those sorts of things. So kind of cracking the code of the name there. Got it. Got it. So once, okay. we've, once we've got our little solvent and it's full of our organic acids and amino acids, we're going to go to the instrument. And most chromatography instruments have what's called an analytical column. And this is where they do the next step of separation. And it's literally just a on liquid chromatography, a metal tube, you know, maybe 15 to 30 centimeters long. Is it made of chromium? It probably is not. Okay. Mm. See? I mean, and I, there is a tube. I told you there's a tube. Yeah. You guys got real close, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Not> so <laughs> you get this metal tube, and it's full of these tiny little beads. It's just jam-packed full of beads. And so this is where the next level of, of separation is going to happen. And on a liquid, in an LC instrument, you've got this tube, and it's plumbed up on the instrument so that there's a constant flow of liquid flowing through this tube. Okay. And that's called your mobile phase. And it's mobile because it moves. moves. There you go. Mm. Look at that. Yeah. Coffee's kicking in. And then inside the tube, those little beads are what's going to interact with your sample. And those are called the stationary phase because... It doesn't move. There you go. So there is a filter, kind of. Yeah. But really, all chromatography, you'll hear that regardless of the instrument, about a stationary phase and a mobile phase. And it's really the interaction of those two that's causing the next layer of separation. So I've got this tube full of beads, and I'm flowing this liquid mobile phase through it just in a constant stream. And I'm going to inject that sample at the beginning of the stream, and it's going to flow through the column with my mobile phase. Now, the mobile phase isn't reacting with those beads. You don't want that to happen. Right. But your sample will. So as your sample sort of flows through the, through the column, it's going to react with those beads, and it's going to differentially bind depending on size or pH or whatever we're using to separate them out. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a dumb question? No dumb questions. <laughs> Michael. Judgment-free zone. Mm, thanks. What are the beads made of? Do the, does it differ depending on what you're looking for? Yes, there are hundreds of thousands of different beads. See, not a dumb question, Michael. Oh, a dumb question, okay, though. so this is why you have different columns. That's so right. So when you're talking about, oh, we have to get that particular column, I see. Yes, and that's okay. that's part of the development, too, is figuring out what kind of beads do you want in there depending on what you want to grab. Again, back to the what do I know about my analytes. Do I want to grab just nitrogen-containing components, or do I want to grab you know, really acidic things? Like it, it, You can choose all kinds of filling inside that tube. You also have a lot of control over your mobile phase, you know, temperature, pH, that kind of stuff. And this is where all that analytical chemistry comes in during the development. I see. Is figuring out how to make my analytes bind to those beads, and then how do I wash them off. But at the end of the day, what I've got is a sample that goes on the front of the column. It washes through, reacts with all those little beads, and then they come off one at a time at, off the other end of the column as they usually something like size. So for an organic acids, the smaller molecules are going to move faster through the column than the larger ones, which are going to react more with the beads. Does mm. that make sense? Yep. Yeah, kind of like pinball in there. Like they're moving and getting stuck, and the little ones go straight through. Exactly. Right. See how I did there, Michael? That was a great metaphor. I'm going oil and vinegar, pinball. This is where I'm at. This is the level I'm at. You are in the zone. <laughs> but you got it. I'm just so basic. That I'm, I'm like, i got to dumb this down. <laughs> like, talk to me like I'm a four-year-old. Though I'm not sure why you talk about clinical chemistry with a four-year-old. <laughs> but <laughs> go ahead. So you got your sample coming in, reacting with all the beads, and then they're shooting off the end of that column one at a time. And then this is where they're hitting the detector. And so, there, again, there's a ton of different types of detectors, and I could go on all day about those. So they come through that column, and now it's time to read them. And you're using mass spectrometry 
to read what's coming off the other end. Yes. What does that entail? Good question. Thanks. So they're, they're coming off the end of the column, basically sorted by size, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, we've got them separated out. But you have to remember that some analytes are very similar in size still. So you have things that, like succinic acid and methylmalonic acid that both have molecular weights of 118. So they're going to come off the end of the column at the same time. Okay. So we need one more level of nice. separation. And that's going to happen in the detector. So they go into... The first part of the of, of the mass spec is called the ionization chamber, and we're going to hit it with a charge. We're going to ionize those molecules and get them all excited, so they start moving through. The next layer is another filter, where it's basically, without getting too complicated, it's filtering out these, mo these charged molecules by their size and by their charge. So I can set the machine to say, only look for molecules of this size with this particular charge. Hmm. And then they go into the this part called the collision chamber. Where things wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute, wait I a minute. I want to go there. Okay, so <laughs> when, Jim, cool. when Jim was on, he informed <laughs> oh, us that they were blasting things apart with lasers. They mm -hmm. are. So is this going to be equally as cool when we're talking about the collision chamber? Oh, it's got to be. Are things, gonna, are, cool. things are like smashing into each other and exploding or? There are atoms exploding. That's cool. see, that's what I wanted to hear. There's yeah, no lasers. Yeah, there's no lasers quite like the Maldi-Toff, but. Cool. <laughs> yeah, right. So you've got this filter, this mass filter. It passes through and I say, I only want things this size. And it goes into the collision chamber and it explodes. And the cool thing about that is that it's breaking into these little fragments. And so you have, even if you have molecules like succinic and methylmalonic that are the same size, because their structures are different, they're going to break in different patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's going to go into one last filtration where I say, show me all these different fragments. Mm -hmm. And what comes out at the very end of this is sort of a fingerprint. It's like a spectral fingerprint where I can see all the different fragments that came from that original molecule. And if I know how succinic fractionates but differently than methylmalonic, then I know that you know a, a fragment the size of 79 is only going to go back to this molecule versus this molecule. And at that point, we can say we can measure how much of those fragments are coming off. And the cool thing is, is that there's these worldwide databases of these fingerprints, basically, mm -hmm. that we can compare to if we're unsure. If we see something coming off the instrument, we're unsure exactly what it is. We can compare it to these databases to say, oh, this is this is an interferon or this is our analyte of interest. Can I ask another dumb question? Yes. <laughs> so mass spec is what's reading things as they come out. Yes. Tandem mass spec, which means two mass specs, is that collision chamber the next step after that? Like after that collision chamber? No. Well, or do you collide them twice? Yeah. Is that, what the, is that what's Ooh, happening? That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the tandem mass spec just means that's when you're talking about an LC, MS, MS. It just means we needed one more layer of filtration. Uh. So we mm. collide it, we fragment it. it, and then we say it goes through one more filter. And those are helpful for things that are so similar, like isomers of each other, like the leucine and isoleucine that mm -hmm. we do in amino acids. Yeah. yeah, they are not only the same molecular weight, they're the same structure. Mm -hmm. It's just what side of the molecule is wow. that methyl yeah. group on. Right. And so cool. the nice thing about the triple quad, the mass spec, mass spec, is that it gives you a tremendous amount of specificity and being able to separate those sorts of things. God, we're so smart now. It's really cool. So let's see how close Michael was. He talked about some kind of sieve type thing, a tube. I said something, or you said something about a tube. I'm sure gravity's involved somehow. Well, maybe it that's part of the desk. collision. <laughs> that's gravity. So I do have a question. So that's liquid chromatography. What What's different about gas chromatography then? You said it's just the 
so it relates to the mobile phase and it, what what form the mobile phase is going through, what's going through those particular beads or exactly. So what I just described. Wow, Chapman. Look at oh, you. Yeah. Look at you got oh, it. Yeah. Now I'm really getting yeah. some caffeine in there. <laughs> right. So the liquid chromatography, you got that middle tube and the mobile phase is liquid and it's flowing through. The gas is exactly the same except that it's in the gas phase. So instead of using a liquid, we use helium. As a, it's the mobile phase is also called a carrier gas, but it's still you still got that middle tube, but instead of being 30 centimeters, it's like 30 meters, and it's all coiled up, and w it's kept the front part of that instrument is kept in a big expensive oven that sits at about 300 degrees Celsius all the time, so that's like what five or 600 degrees Fahrenheit. It's really really hot, and so when I inject my liquid sample to the front of that column, it hits that 300 degrees oven and just like that, it's now a gas. Mm. And then we use the helium to push it through the column the same right. way that we did the mobile phase. And so from an analytical perspective, is one better than the other? Is one more sensitive than the other? Good question, Michael. That is a good question. Comes up a lot. Okay, really the sensitivity and specificity comes on the mass spec side. The LC versus GC is really just talking about how are you gonna separate them. And what we found is that GC tends to be very, very robust. It requires a lot more upfront sample prep because you're going to have to, you know, turn that sample into a gas, and a lot of analytes don't like that. Like our amino acids, some of them really they start doing funny things and changing into other things and breaking down. So we had to keep those in the liquid form, you know, just to keep them a little more happy. Mm -hmm. So the the gas chromatography it requires a lot more upfront prep, but once you've got it on the instrument, it's incredibly robust. Like that, it, that it's. What does that mean? It means that it performs the same every single time. Okay. Uh, mm. As far as the, the, the separation, the liquid chromatography is nice because you don't have a whole lot of upfront sample prep. In some cases, you can just squirt your sample right on the instrument, but it's a little more finicky because you're talking about a liquid mobile phase. So any change to the pH of your buffer or salt content or buffering capacity, if the room heats up too much, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause all those thermodynamics, the liquids to move a little faster or slower, which is then going to mean my analytes are going to move faster or slower. And so it becomes a little more inconsistent on the back end. So it's, a, it's sort of a give or take on the chromatography side about, you know, do you put your resources up front on getting the sample stable or do you put your resources towards keeping your instruments happy? Got it. Because you don't want to mess up with the thermodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can I ask a question that you probably edit out? Patty has just, a, her I, hand I in the air. I really just want to ask this question, but like these beads, right? Like you, you order a bunch of different kinds of beads, right? The beads. The beads. And the question then, it, my real question was, so you're using them over and over and over and over until what? They expire? Eventually they break down. Yeah. So the like how do you know when that's happening? Because suddenly you, you, it's going to start acting weird, the machine, right? That is actually a really good question. Boom. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so the, the, bead, the beads you do after you've put a sample on, then we have to wash them off really, really well so there's not any carryover to the next. Okay. But what that means is those beads do start to break down. And so as part of our development and validation process, that's part of what we define is how many injections can we get on that column before we start to see breakdown. And what that looks like on the instrument is that the peaks that are coming off the other side start to spread out. So mm. if you think about, you know, like a kinurenic used to hold on until minute – I'm just making some stuff up, you know, minute five, and then it shoots off the end. If the beads are starting to break down, then it starts to sort of spread out and come out at different times. Because what you want to come out of the machine essentially looks like, the, when you say peaks, it kind of looks on the actual reader like a like a spire, yes. like a really sharp point as compared to like a hill or a mountaintop. And so the, the sharper that spire, would that be a better read or... 
Correct. Right. Ideally, we want a nice sharp peak because that, that tells us that that is our analyte of interest and absolutely nothing else. And in the bell curve, there could be several analytes in there Correct. hidden, kind of. Yeah. And when you're talking about things that are so similar, they're coming off pretty close to each other. So if they start to spread, then they start to sort of spread into each other. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, when we're quantifying how much lactic acid or whatever, we're basically measuring the area under that peak to be able to tell us how much of that analyte is in the sample. Got it. Wow. So you want to keep it nice, tight, sharp peaks. Got it. Cool. So there's GC, there's LC, and we sort of established that one's not necessarily better than the other when it comes to precision. Actually, most of your sensitivity, specificity, precision, accuracy, those things you're asking about are referring more to the detector side, about the, okay. the mass spec versus a mass spec, the, the triple quad, like we talked about before, giving that extra layer the of... Triple quadruple? So what What's makes quad? you... quad? Triple quad. Yes, That's a quadruple. good question, yeah. What, what are you quadruple. talking about there? I love this word, but I can you explain quadruple? It's like four poles, Michael. You know what? It's actually four poles. Boom. You yeah, know. but I mean, what what is it? What is it doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, so you remember I talked about that mass filter? Yeah. It's actually four poles, the quadrupole, and we apply an oscillating electric field, and that's sort of as the those electrified molecules are flying into the detector, they sort of have this little motion that it helps filter out. Like in the vortex, spun yes. out in the vortex, like mm -hmm. a little like like a tornado sucking them out and getting spun in. Exactly. Just like the tornado. I want to work in the lab. This sounds really cool. I know. Now I don't know whether Collision I want to work chamber. with lasers or quadrupoles. Right. But you say that the the accuracy precision has more to do with the detection side. Why why does it have more to do with the detection side than the separation side? Well the separation's important. You can't you're not you're not gonna get it accurate or detection if you don't have good separation. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's just sort of assumed. But the detectors and the different types of detectors, you know, being able to give you that mass fingerprint, those chromatograms, gives you the ability to compare to all these databases to know accuracy. Got that, it. that what this peak that I'm looking at, it fragmented exactly the same way as every other pyruvic acid in the world. So I'm confident that that's pyruvic. You know, the sensitivity, it's the same thing. Being able to, to measure something down to the mass level, mm -hmm. that's really low, versus something like a UV detector where you're looking at a UV light coming off of it. Uh -huh. You have a little less sensitivity. Okay. And then things like the triple quad, having the mass spec, mass spec, gives you that specificity for things that are really, really similar. Got mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So when it, when it comes to the number that's coming off the machine, because at the end of the day, you know, you want to know your TSH is below 2.5, right? So... What determines that? So you said the area under the curve of that peak essentially gives you a quantification. Mm -hmm. So, and I, it comes off the machine looking different, right? It it's, it doesn't just come off the machine saying, oh, TSH 2.1 units. Well, we program it that way. So as part of the development, let's say that you're measuring TSH. We will run just straight TSH with nothing else, just in water. And then we'll see when it comes out. We'll say, okay, that peak comes out at exactly 6.2 minutes, and it has these fragments. And so then we tell the instrument, at this time, these fragments, that's identified as this particular analyte. And so then with every run that we run, we run a set of calibrators that have a known value, and we're able to build a calibration curve that can calculate. Then the area under the curve can then translate it into the quantification so what are some things that can maybe cause a problem with the detection or your ability to get an accurate read of the area under the curve and therefore the value? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and we have a lot of problems, too, with things like interferences. You know, things, if the patients are taking medications or 
or that sort of thing that could create a peak at the same time with the same ions as an analyte of interest. We get a lot of these sometimes with the hormones because you have a lot of things, you guys probably know this more than I do, things that you could be eating that look like hormones, like the phytoestrogens and right. things like that, that once they hit the instrument, they can look similar or get close. And that's when we have to start peeling apart. What exactly is this analyte? Because they mess with the area under the curve. Exactly. They either contribute to it or we've had situations where something is so big that it it can inhibit the actual analyte of interest so then the, the peak gets smaller. Okay. What about some things that, because we'll get this on occasion where, you know, we talk about a window of diagnostic sensitivity or what do we refer to it as like within two standard deviations you can see you know that if you shoot the same sample at the same time you're not going to get the exact value and I think this is something that is a big misnomer in the clinical mindset because they think if you do a blood draw you know at the same time and you shoot that sample a hundred times you're going to get the exact same number every single 100 times because that's how sensitive the equipment is. And that's not necessarily the case. So what are some things that can contribute to why you're gonna stay from a precision standpoint, you're gonna stay close to a particular number, but it might, it might deviate left and right. Yes, and that's something that we evaluate during development and validation. That's part of the federally required validation processes is that we define for every analyte what that precision acceptability is. And so we will do exactly that. We'll take the same sample and we will inject it 20 times in a row and we'll calculate the coefficient of variance to say how much do we expect that to change just injection to injection. And then we'll also take the same sample and go from the very beginning and process it all the way through 20 times on different days by different people to say even just going instrument to instrument or tech to tech, what level of variation do we expect from the same sample run multiple times? Mm -hmm. And then as part of like regulations, like clear regulations or federal regulations, how often do you repeat this like these running it through 20 times, how often do you have to troubleshoot and, and just make sure that you're maintaining that same standard? Well, the labs are running controls every single batch, and so they, hmm. they monitor the precision and, and what are my CVs on my controls with every single batch. So they're oh. constantly watching it. And it is something that the inspectors are, when they come in periodically to, to look at our work and what we're doing, is they always take a look at what is our precision and is it falling within acceptable ranges. Nice. Okay, so since we have you here, Ashley, we're just gonna we're gonna do question of the day because I think this is probably relevant yes. to all of us. So uh, let's do question of the day. What time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. No, I shortened, shortened that one up a little <laughs> bit. So the question of the day is, what is the sensitivity specificity? And what does that mean? Because we get asked a lot of, you know, what is the, organ what is the sensitivity of your organic acid testing? And I think that this is a topic that probably needs a little bit of clearing up. Well, I, I actually think that there's a two-part answer to this. So maybe Ashley, you and I can kind of tag team again this one. Or? No, okay. it just just one one playing of the jingles okay. should suffice for okay. both. Right. Um, but the first part of that is there's a difference between clinical sensitivity and specificity versus laboratory analytical sensitivity and specificity. And right. so when you're talking about when someone asks what's the sensitivity of this assay, in our minds we're trying to distinguish what they mean. Do you mean clinically? What's the ability to rule in 
a specific condition or disease or rule it out. Right. So from a clinical perspective, we need to understand, are you asking that question or are you an asking us an analytical question, which we would then kick to Ashley Gibbon to help us answer that part. Right. Correct. And uh, from an analytical point of view, sensitivity is how low can I detect this analyte? So the, the actual detection limit versus specificity analytically means can I detect this analyte versus another analyte? Can I distinguish the two? Right. Which is very, very different from clinical sensitivity specificity, but it gets used interchangeably. And, and we'll get a question of, you know, what's the sensitivity of your culture analysis? And you always, the, the answer to that is, well, what are you trying to diagnose, right? So for a great example is the EIA for C. diff. Right. So that has a particular sensitivity and specificity. The sensitivity is going to tell you what's the percentage of times that somebody has C. diff infection and this shows up a positive. And the specificity is how many times does it not show up and the patient doesn't have it. Right. So that's a clinical sensitivity specificity, but it always hinges on what you're trying to diagnose. And we get the similar sort of question with SIBO. What's the sensitivity specificity of your SIBO test? Well, there's not a gold standard that's been comparator as far as diagnosis for SIBO. So we can't really get a sensitivity specificity for that. We can get an analytical, you know, how what's the detection limits and, and the accuracy and precision and that sort of thing. But people use these words interchangeably when really when we're talking about clinical sensitivity specificity it's the ability to rule in or rule out a particular disease. And the problem also with that, Michael, is that sometimes it's patient, there's a, there's a patient part of this where the patient doing the test, there's a variable there as well that is never taken into account. So it depends on the test. It depends on the question you're actually asking us. Is it clinical related or is it analytical? And I, so I think that that's an important distinction when we get that question. Right. Great. So we solved that one. We solved a lot of things in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I've got one other thing here. You know, since you are one of the lab individuals that's coming on and, and a little bit frequently, we've been talking about how this is the, the segment called Scienceness, Technology, and Machine Mechanics. So I just wanted to run this uh, introduction, this intro past okay. you, okay. and see if we can get your input as to whether this is a go-forward thumbs-up for this particular segment, or... Uh, you should just, just keep working on it. You know, just get your visceral reaction. All right, so here, here goes. Scienceness. Technology. Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> See? I also love that title. You think I could get that on my business card? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we can make that work. We okay. haven't patented that, right? That's just sort of fun. Yeah. We can let you use that. Awesome. You could try that on for a while. All right, that's a thumbs up, and so that will be the uh, the, the intro moving You're forward. You're going to grow to regret that, Ashley. <laughs> you Is that going to be your you entrance wanna, music every time you come? You want to hear it again? Let's hear it again. Science this. gets better every time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as always, this has been enlightening. No, Ashley, if I followed all of that, yeah. I have a feeling most people will. Awesome. Yeah, this has been enlightening. I think it's really going to help to have a little bit of a peek behind the curtain into what goes on at the lab. 
on how these things are run. So uh, thank you for your explanations and uh, dealing with us. <laughs> thank you, guys. This is fun. <laughs> we love when Ashley comes. Well, wait. Yeah. Am I being replaced, Michael? We could never replace you. Thank you. You're irreplaceable. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Bye, guys. You know, Patty, I was just thinking that hmm. when these episodes show up on iTunes and Spotify, they yeah. they show up in reverse order. I know. And we keep teasing the next episode. <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe it'd be more appropriate to just tease the previous episode. Tease in reverse. That's right. Last week that's on right. The Lab Report. Oh, that's funny. Last time on The Lab Report, <laughs> we talked about minerals. We did talk about minerals. But no, seriously, what are we doing next week? SIBO. Cool. But last time... Minerals. Minerals. Okay. Just so you know what's coming. <laughs> or past. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. I think it's okay. I, I do too. I actually, I, okay. I followed it. And um, I, let's be honest, I'm probably the person, I'm the control. Okay, because I don't know if I don't know what's going on.